Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. We know from the Marine Corps hymn they've traveled to the halls of Montezuma and the shores of Tripoli. Many people may not realize the Marines also traveled to the low elevation swampy territory of Florida for both the First and Second Seminole Wars. In this episode, we're joined by Paul Westermeyer, historian at Marine Corps University in Quantico, Virginia. He weaves the story of how the Marine Corps established a sound footing after a false start during the Revolutionary War, and then saw action off the Gulf Coast during the First Seminole War. In our second episode, we'll look at the Marine Corps in the Second Seminole War. The views expressed in this presentation are those of our guest, Paul Westermeyer, and do not necessarily reflect the official policy of any government organization. Paul Westermeyer, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thank you. So, Paul, the question we're always asking is, what is the Marine Corps doing in a land war in Florida? It's true that the Marine Corps was created primarily to serve as naval troops aboard the vessels of the U.S. Navy. The Marines are acting as naval troops, but they're also going to be acting as reinforcements to the land army. And that's their most famous use during Seminole Wars was as reinforcements to the U.S. Army. Throughout its history, the Marine Corps really served basically four functions. Paul, what are those functions? One is as the naval troops or naval infantry who serve in support of the U.S. Navy aboard ships. That's the traditional definitional role. Marines have also served as a, they don't like to say second land army, but as support for the army. As a trained body of troops, the Marines have been able to reinforce the U.S. Army when, for various reasons, its numbers haven't been tied as are necessary to the task at hand. So the Marines, throughout their history, from the very beginning, have often been used as an adjunct to the U.S. Army in order to beef up its numbers. In fact, Marines were involved in the crossing of the Delaware, Continental Marines. The other role that Marines often have filled is as a palace guard. And that's the thing where you see the Marine Corps band, the Marines at Eighth and I with the Friday evening parades, the Marines on ceremonial guard duty at the White House, that sort of ceremonial function. So that can also be very real when you think of Marines fighting forest fires in California or being involved in crowd control and riots. So that's something that the Corps did more often, obviously, in the 19th century. Or Marines, like in the 1930s, protecting the mail along the railroads when there was a difficulty with the post office and there were a lot of mail robberies. Those are sort of palace guard-style functions or internal that the Marine Corps is often called on to perform because of its status, again, as a formed, trained body of troops. And then the last is what you might call colonial infantry. And this is where the Marine Corps has acted as the occupying force for the United States in new territories that it has uh, taken over and conquered, places like the Philippines, or also when the Marine Corps has simply been deployed by the State Department to support friendly governments, such as in Haiti or the Dominican Republic or uh, Nicaragua. Where does the embassy protection function fall under this? Yes, the embassy function is primarily more of what you might consider a palace guard function, right? 
The Marines at embassies are primarily sort of ceremonial. They're actually not there to fight a last stand if the embassy is attacked, but rather to provide a visual representation of the United States government, its faith, its organization, its power. And they have day-to-day responsibilities as well, of course. So those are the four roles that the Marine Corps has filled. These are sort of de facto roles that the Marine Corps has filled throughout its history. Basically, when the United States is attempting to influence affairs overseas in foreign areas, and they're not employing, for whatever reason, the Army, the the Marine Corps is often called on to act in that capacity. Again, it's very similar to, we use the term colonial because it's similar to the way that the various European states employed colonial troops in the colonies that they got around the world in the 19th century. That's why you, you see the Marines in the Philippine direction, or you see the Marines being used by the State Department to help provide stability in places like Haiti and Nicaragua in the 1920s and the 1930s. In each case, it depends on the situation. There's a bit of a legend that the Marine Corps somehow can be used constitutionally, where the Army cannot, but that's actually not accurate. For various reasons, it was easier for presidents at various times to deploy the Marines. But in the case of the Seminole Wars, the reason that the Marines are there is primarily they're fulfilling two different functions. One is, again, is the naval troops. There are Marines on the U.S. Navy squadrons that are in the Caribbean, the Gulf of Mexico, and involved in policing and fighting the Seminole Wars, policing Florida, the waters around Florida, and also fighting the Seminole Wars. So they're serving their traditional naval troop functions there aboard the ships of the naval fleet, where they had been uh, from the very beginning. The, the U.S. Navy had just completed during the uh, 1820s a campaign against piracy in the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean that had sprung up or increased due to the chaos of the collapse of the Spanish Empire following the Napoleonic Wars. And the Marines aboard the Navy squadrons that were sent down there to suppress piracy were involved in that. And they also established bases that, for example, there was a Marine barracks established at Key West in southern Florida. And Florida was often used as a sort of a port of call for water, storing supplies, etc., as the United States Navy was suppressing this piracy in the Caribbean and in the Gulf of Mexico. A lot of people don't realize that, for example, Jean Lafitte, the pirates, the Baratarian pirates who fought at uh, New Orleans with the United States against the British, returned to piracy after the War of 1812. They moved their base places in Mexican, well, at that time, Spanish Mexico, and then eventually Mexican Texas, until they were suppressed in part by this naval campaign. What's the background on establishing a Marine Corps and a Navy? The Frigate Navy, the title comes from the act that established the U.S. Navy officially. 1798 is the year that the U.S. Navy was officially created, and actually the year the Marine Corps was created. Wait, I thought the Marine Corps was created in 1775. I know we like to say that created on 10 November 1775. That's the Continental Marine Corps. There were Marines that the Continental Congress created on that date, They were supposed to raise two battalions, and they did fight during the American Revolution. As I mentioned, some of them were at the crossing of the Delaware and so forth. There were some that were landed on British Isles in the south. They fought in some of the various naval engagements that young Continental Navy was involved in. 
But when the American Revolution ended, Congress refused to fund the Navy any further, and the ships were sold off, the crews and men were all dismissed from service, ultimately. There is no continuity, especially for the Marine Corps. As far as I've been able to determine, none of the officers became officers in the United States Marine Corps in 1798, and the new Marine Corps, the, the proper Marine Corps, none of them served as Continental Marines. And none of the enlisted men that I'm aware of had served as Continental Marines, though that's possible. The officer pool is very small, so that's quite certain. We have far fewer records, so it is possible that there might have been one or two enlisted men who served in both. But considering the, the gap in years, it's unlikely. This would be in contrast. This, this continuity would this discontinuity would be in contrast to the U.S. Army, which, although drawn down to a very small skeleton staff, still existed. The Army technically never went away, though it transformed. There was eventually the American Legion that fought in the Northwest Territory and so forth. But navies were seen by the colonists as something that, that central governments used to oppress others. And they were also expensive. You can't have a navy without paying taxes. And the last thing Americans ever want to do is pay tax. We want all of our governmental services to be free. The Marine Corps had been disbanded. So the actual Marine Corps today is created in 1798. And the Navy Act that creates it authorizes six frigates. This is the famous USS Constitution, the Constellation, the President. These six frigates, the famous three of which are the famous super heavy frigates that are go on, going to go on to such uh, renown in the War of 1812. And they all require Marines because during the age of sail, warships had Marines. They were an integral weapon, basically. The way that a modern warship might absolutely have machine guns, anti-missile weapon systems such as the CIWS and so forth. So the, the Marines were a part of a ship. You simply, uh, one Marine officer said that they're like buttons on a coat. A ship without Marines is like a coat without buttons. The Marines are integral to naval warfare in the great age of sail, the great Napoleonic warfare period. And of course, we're designing our Navy around the most successful Navy in the world, which is the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy had a Marine Corps, therefore we have a Marine Corps. Your history of the Marine Corps stops in 1859. Why is that? I chose that date because one, Lieutenant Colonel Henderson, Major General Henderson at the end, the grand old man of the Marine Corps, the commandant who lived the longest, served the longest over 40 years, dies in 89. So his death is really the end of an era, and he dies in office. I would argue the Marine Corps, the Civil War starts in 1859, because that's also about five or six months or so after Henderson dies, is when the Marines are involved in suppressing John Brown's attempt to free slaves at Harper's Ferry. As I mentioned, the palace guard aspect, right? The Marines are often called out riots and insurrections. And Marines in New Orleans in, I think, 1811 were called out to suppress a slave rebellion, the Marine barracks there under uh, Major Daniel Carmack. So Marines had a long history of, as federal troops. Remember, the, the United States really dislikes federal troops. During this time period, especially, the central government is often looked down on, despite the incredibly poor record 
of the militias and the various state militias and so forth, which do very, very poorly. They have the Minutemen. They have this incredibly overrated reputation. In fact, they lose. They run away. They're incredibly undisciplined. They commit far more atrocities. But they're trusted because people believe that these federal troops, they think of them as the same way that the colonists thought of redcoats during the American Revolution, right? They're there to put you down. And so the Marines are often thought of that, but because the Marines are there for the Navy, and when they're not on ship, they're generally guarding Navy yards and naval facilities, they're usually the only body of formed troops in the large cities. When you have slave outbreaks or when you have riots, often the only federal troops and thus the only body of troops you can kind of call on are the Marines. The closest formed body of Marines or of uh, troops were the Marines, and they, they were led by an army officer, Robert E. Lee, actually, during this event. Though I think it's quite interesting to point out that the Maryland militia, the colonel commanding the Maryland militia, when it's time to actually storm the Harper's Ferry and end uh, Brown's attempt to free the slaves, he points to the Marines and says, my militia is not going to do it. Let the mercenaries do it. One thing to keep in mind is that the Marines of this time period, the Marines of the 19th century, they're not an elite force, and they're not considered an elite force by other people for the most part. Regular soldiers in general are looked down upon. And again, like I said, despite the fact that again and again in actual battles, it's the regular forces that do the best. Marines at the Battle of Bladensburg are the Marines and sailors, regular federal troops. They stand firm and earn the respect of the British fighting them, whereas the militia run like rabbits. So they call it the Bladensburg races because of how badly the militia perform there. That's something to keep in mind. The functions are what the focus is on, the idea of internal disturbance. They also fight fires. Remember, during the 19th century, most of the uh, cities don't have fire department. And so Marines are often called out to fight fires as well. Again, it's not an expertise thing so much as a group of formed men that have an organization and that can be ordered to do these things. Palace guard can be a loaded term, but the big thing is it calls also, like I said, the ceremonial duties into effect. The Marine Corps band is a big part of this. And one thing is that we have very uh, extensive celebrations of Washington's birthday and the 4th of July at Washington, D.C. throughout the 19th century. And the Marine Corps is always a big part of that, putting on... you got to remember, this is a world without television or movies or CD players. And so the Marine Corps band, that's people's music. Like, that's what everybody hears. They don't get... It's not like, oh, I'm going to listen to the Marine Corps band. Now nah, I'm going to go listen to Van Halen. That's what there is. That's why you get a glimpse of this if you look at movies like The Music Man. Guys like John Philip Sousa who's, of course, one of the, the most famous directors of the Marine Corps band, they are the rock stars of their time period. Marching band music is the popular music. It's one of the ways that people are entertained. Because I think the biggest thing, like I said, is simply that it exists and there's nothing else. There might be a uh, fiddler or a flutist or something. You know, there might be the occasional itinerant musician or a small group, but there's nothing with the volume or the complexity of a marching band. But the Marine Corps, of course, they use music to give orders. The Marines are hiring musicians from the very beginning and so forth. But quite early, the commandants, starting with the Commandant Wharton, realize that this Marine Corps band gives them a, they have these really very good trained musicians, and that gives them an advantage that they can employ in Washington politics. 
where the Marine Corps band, it performs at these big ceremonies, like I said, for the 4th of July celebrations, Washington's birthday, which was a much bigger deal in the 19th century than it is today. These sorts of celebrations, but they also get hired out or they will perform at various, like, oh, you're throwing a dinner party. The Marine Corps band will send some musicians to come and perform there. And so the senator's wife, the president's wife, when they're throwing parties and they can have this kind of music and so forth, that's a real in. That's one of the things that I, I mean is that the Marine Corps fulfills that function of being, I hate to use the word entertainment, but it's there, and of helping to create this aura of legitimacy around the government that these groups provide. Which type of ships would see Marines deployed on them? The U.S. Navy was small, and the major vessel at the beginning in 1798 was the ship of the line, which could have as many as 100 guns, but most often they would have around 70 to 72. These were very, very large guns, very, very large ships. A ship of the line might have 100 Marines. As a general rule of thumb for the Royal Navy, they had one Marine aboard a ship for every gun that the ship carried. The Marine Corps fought hard to get that established, which eventually they succeeded, as the rule of thumb for the Marine Corps as well. The U.S. Navy knew, starting from scratch, they couldn't compete with the ships of the line. So what they did was they focused on frigates, which were the sort of the cruisers of the day. They usually had around 30 guns, and they were for commerce raiding, for patrolling, but they could especially a large frigate, could stand up to a ship of the line if the weather was bad so that the ship of the line couldn't use its lower gun ports, for example. The United States had some very skilled shipwrights who designed these heavy frigates, which had as many as 50 guns. Though they were usually rated at 44, and they would carry around 50 Marines, like the USS Constitution. These were almost like the pocket battleships of their day. They were designed to be able to take out any other country's frigates but they could outsail and flee if they were faced by a uh, ship of the line. And that turned out to be primarily the case during the War of 1812, which is what really established the context for the Marine Corps in the Seminole Wars. So the, the Marine Corps had been formed to provide the Marines for these ships. It was decided, it didn't have to be decided this way, a lot of people forget this, but it was decided that there would be a central organization. Instead of the Marines on each ship sort of being self-contained and just reporting to the captain, that all the Marines would report to the Commandant of the Marine Corps. There would be a Marine Corps, not simply Marines aboard ship. The Commandants had barracks where the Marines were trained. They built these barracks. They had at places such as in New York, Boston, Norfolk. The Marines would provide guards for the various Navy yards where the supplies and stores of the U.S. Navy were being kept. And they, the, the Marines would be rotated through these places. Uh, Philadelphia was another big place. Such ships became so paramount, they referred to it as the Frigate Navy. The term Frigate Navy is generally used to refer to this early U.S. Navy that is based primarily around frigates. We do build ships of the line following the War of 1812, but not for very long because the ship of the line is, becomes relatively obsolete after that. And of course, by the time we get to the Civil War, we're seeing a shift to, to ships powered by steam. And then that's when we start to see ironclads and, and we move more into what we might call the steam Navy. And then eventually in the 9th, 20th century, we end up with the battleship Navy and then the carrier Navy and so on. Oh, no. 
actually not the, the frigates are actually pretty much not and there are almost no frigates there might be one or two why was that because while the frigates are very good for fighting against the royal navy and for seizing other countries commerce for commerce raiding they're not great for suppressing piracy well except acting perhaps as the flagship of a squadron because they're still capital ships if you will they're still large vessels and so the ships that you need are more sloops and brigantines the smaller vessels that's what you need and that's primarily what the types of vessels that are used um, in the gulf of mexico and in the caribbean to suppress the pirates and up and down the florida coast you need smaller more agile vessels that can sail close to the wind that have relatively shallow drafts so that they can slip in and out of uh, river harbors the frigates in fact tend to play relatively little role except for like i said as flagships or uh, sort of a uh, floating bases during the seminole war leading us up to a nice segue tell us about the marine corps in the first seminole war the first seminole war is sort of an odd the dates are a bit odd the earliest that the marines are involved is, of course, they're part of the Patriots War in 1812 when Georgia illegally attacked Spanish Florida. And the Marines are down there fighting. And then following the War of 1812, the thing to keep in mind is all of these campaigns, the Patriot War, the Creek Wars, the Seminole Wars, even the southern parts of the War of 1812, these are all part of the American expansion in the South, driven not primarily so much by a hunger for land as it is driven by the desire for the, well, some of it's a hunger for land within the actual colony in Tennessee and Georgia. The, the desire is to drive the indigenous peoples out so that they can take their land and so that they can remove them from the area to, to, uh, to drive them out or exterminate them. And in the case of Florida or the Gulf Coast? Florida, the primary issue, at least at first, however, is that the southern states like Georgia are extremely heavy slave-owning states, plantation states. Existence of Spanish Florida provides a location for the slaves to flee. Not only that, but the culture in Spanish Florida is extremely multi-ethnic. There are a lot of mestizos. Seminoles themselves accept African-American members of the tribe, the Creeks, the Seminoles, the other groups like the Cherokee, who of course are further north, but are really a part of this as well. All of these groups are somewhat complicated and the degree of acceptance of the African-American slaves, escaped slaves or, or African-Americans generally Cherokee, for example, own slaves. In all of these areas, though, the white plantation owners see them as a threat to the social order. Uh, they are especially upset that Africans are in the positions of authority. The Spanish often even have Native American and African officers, military officers, who much of the fighting. And that absolutely runs against the, the plantation owners. That, that upsets their sense of things. They feel a great need to eliminate a area where people can flee to. And of gaining land and further territory is going to become an important aspect of it. One of the biggest opponents of this expansion is Andrew Jackson, who, of course, fights the Creek Wars during 1812. He defeats most of the Creeks. He then manages to defeat the British at the Battle of New Orleans. A lot of folks don't realize that the British, as part of their attempt to fight the War of 1812, had offered support 
in the form of arms and equipment to Native American tribes in the area, the, many of the Creeks and the uh, Seminoles, some of which accepted them, some of which didn't. They all disagreed on the best way to try to deal with the aggression of the white American neighbors. And so some of them accepted it, some of them didn't. This aid. What changed in 1816, the year after the treaty was ratified, ending the War of 1812? In 1816, this was the first connection of Marines with this warfare. There was a place that was called... Yes, on the Apalachicola River. Marines and sailors aboard two U.S. Navy gunboats, gunboats number 149 and 154, working with the U.S. Army. This fort had been abandoned to a group of escaped slaves by the British, who left it armed and everything when they left the area. They said, okay, the war's over, we're leaving. But we're going to leave all these people that we were supporting. We left them plenty of ammunition and guns. We look at it today in hindsight and say, well, the treaty said they had to evacuate. They should have just evacuated. So why didn't they take everything? But the British at the time had a different view. The British didn't necessarily leave with the sense that they were never coming back. And there were still British agents and so forth in the area. The fort itself had originally been built by the British before they turned it over to these escaped slaves and Native Americans. In 1816, these Marines and sailors aboard these gunboats with the U.S. Army were sent to destroy this fort, again, because of the idea that a fort filled with Native Americans and especially the escaped slaves was something that they really couldn't uh, allow to exist. They believed it would encourage slave revolts and rebellions on their plantations. In the case of the Negro fort on Prospect Bluff, this led to a tragic turn of events. It was very dramatic. The gunboats had a shell hit the powder magazine and blow up the entire fort with that one shell. It's just like a huge explosion. It killed almost all of the inhabitants of the fort. That wasn't planned. It was just an unlucky, catastrophic shot. The Army was there. The Marines were acting in their role as Marines aboard these gunboats. Most of the War of 1817-18 was, of course, run by... General Jackson, who basically launched an illegal invasion of Florida that ultimately led to the Spanish signing over. Basically, they said, well, we just can't defend it anymore. Spain itself had been conquered by Napoleon during the, during the Napoleonic Wars. It had gone back and forth. But we see following the Napoleonic Wars that Spanish control of its colonies just begins to collapse. They attempt to hold on to them, but they're rebellions. Florida is one of the most sparsely populated and weakly held of all the Spanish New World possessions. When the United States under Jackson in 1817 launches this completely unprovoked illegal invasion of Florida, it leads ultimately to the Spanish signing over Florida to the United States in Adams-Onis Treaty of 1821, which then in turn, as the Seminoles realize that with the Spaniards gone, that they're now totally on their own. They used to be able to sort of play the Spanish and the Americans against each other. They can't anymore. And so then they assign the Treaty of Moultrie Creek of 1823, and that's supposed to give a reservation in central Florida to the Seminole Indians. So for all of this early conflict, the Marines have very little role to play. They're some ships and so forth, but they're not major players. 